Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wigan. I am one-third of the team at Tumbledye Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to empower both players and game masters to level up the action, drama, and believability in their tabletop games. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. Dawn Chasers is going strong. Now's the perfect time to join us live on Saturday nights at 8pm Eastern for Trove playtesting. Kathir, Tethys, and Illist are just starting to get their feet under them. How long will it be before I pull the rug out? Probably not long. Come on in and follow along. Want to catch up on where the Dawn Chasers are at before you jump into a live stream? TumbleDie is on YouTube, with Twitch stream archives and soon to be more. Just search for TumbleDie Games, and make sure you like and subscribe for- no no, I just- I just can't say it. But check out the videos anyway. Today I'm joined once again by my TumbleDie co-founders, Kevin and Andy, to further elaborate on the subject of world building that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I thought that, in addition to my own thoughts and processes on the matter, that it might be helpful to hear from others as to what they like to do in their own games. Here's the interview. Kevin, Andy, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Happy to be here. Howdy. So today, I'm glad you guys are here because I'd like to go through the actual process of world building in examples that we've all done recently. To follow on from the previous episode where we talked about, where I talked about my world building process, I thought it would be a really good idea to get some insights from you guys as to your processes. Because as I mentioned in that episode, all of that is what works for me and not necessarily what works for everyone else. So the more perspectives we can get, the better. So let's talk about some play tests. First, I want to start with a world that we all took part in, a test that we started near the middle end of 2019 in a world known as The Empty. Wow. Was it that long ago? It was that long ago, yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was both yesterday and several lifetimes ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So The Empty was a game that I actually generated the original ideas for. I volunteered to step up as the GM for that internal playtest, as we called it, since it was just the three of us. So what I did to build that world was a lot like what I described in the previous episode. I did a lot of iterative building. I came up with a core idea inspired by, as you rightly picked up very quickly, Kevin, the never-ending story and the idea of the nothing <laughs> consuming the world and and you know eating the story it was also inspired by a a game called demon souls where a fog had enveloped all the world except for one small kingdom and a hero had to go there and defeat the demon that was causing the fog before it swallowed the world and so i sort of merged those two inspirations together and created this setting of a a, a lost city where everything had fallen apart and our three heroes had to go there and find out what was causing the problem in order to solve it. As I was writing it, it made sense to me as a good place to start 
and build from in an iterative fashion. I wanted something very simple that we could build on and add new things to. I didn't want to go too deep into detail because Mm. it's more fun for me when the details emerge from the gameplay. Mm -hmm. So that's why I designed that specifically in that way so that our characters would play into it and their histories would be part of it. And it occurred to me only shortly after we created the characters that the it was going to be very difficult in that setting to actually involve the characters' histories at all, which was mistake number one. <laughs> so, Kev, since you were... Uh, Andy actually spent some time GMing that story. So since you were primarily a player, can you talk about your experiences in coming up with ideas and details to help flesh out that world as we went along? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah, I... I do remember the the never ending story kind of inspiration, but um, but honestly, we we didn't lean on that at all. We we really just had a lot of fun digging in to some very different character ideas. Inu the Windwalker was the character that I created, and I, I honestly I'm not sure where the inspiration came from, but I knew I wanted to do a, a, a spellcaster, but something a little unconventional, a little different than Vancean magic, as we've talked about in right, other right. episodes. Um, and so I was able to sort of create, you know, just out of the blue, like this this ocean-faring sort of character who manipulated uh, the wind and the water. And it, it, was, it was something I was able to come up with, you know, out of the blue, just out of, out of, what I was in the mood for at that moment. And then you're right. We hit the challenge of tying these characters into the world. And that challenge wound up becoming a lot of fun because we then started creating backstory and connecting these characters and um, past relationships for these characters. And uh, Andy, I'm going to steal maybe part of your story. So I hope, hope you don't mind, but one of no, one of the best parts is that Andy created a relationship for his character with uh, mm. the same you know NPC that that I had created as a backstory relationship for my character. Except whereas mine was a childhood friend, his was a nemesis. Right, mm-hmm. right. And and we right away we were like, oh. <laughs> How 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 are we how do we handle this? We know we're gonna meet this guy. I'm not sure how, but we know we're gonna meet him. <laughs> right, right. And that's 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 what you we handed gotta. to the narrator to you. You know, we're just like, hey, you know, we created this great element that you then have as as fodder for more story. That was one of the things that really resonated with me early on as part of the the empty. Um, and then the story itself was was a lot of fun because despite the fact that these characters are isolated in this ghost city, we found ways to invoke their, their history and Mm. where they overlapped and that sort of thing. And, uh, and it was really fun, like trying to find those ways, you know, sort of, sort of pulling them out of the ether and that dead city kind of became a blank canvas in a lot of ways for telling her the story. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it absolutely did. And as we were doing it, I had designed it initially as a way to be a fantasy, right? In 
to invoke uh, Matt Colville's definition of fiction versus fantasy, in which fiction is a story that happens despite the characters and fantasy is a story that happens to and because of the characters. I had mm. designed this to be a direct challenge to the characters that we created mm. uh, for, for the listeners. I was in fact running a character simultaneously, which is in general a no, no, but we all, we all trust each other here. So <laughs> yeah. it was a very specific circumstance. So at about, I don't know. I, I think it was a little more than the halfway mark. So I ran, I think, five or six or seven sessions in this dead city. And then our original plan was as part of the playtesting process, we were going to pass off the GM. And so I had presented a city full of, you know, of, of zombies, essentially of, of the dead and a mysterious power that was seeking to destroy the world. But through this, this, you know, emptiness that was eating everything. And then I passed the torch to Andy <laughs> and without any explanation, all Andy had to go on was what I had already described. So I took all my notes and I just put them aside and I passed it off to him. So Andy, what was it like, first of all, taking the GM's chair in the middle of a story? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think we had to have a, a bit of a conversation first, like how, how much I felt I needed to honor your work so far. So I, I made sure that whether or not you wanted me to take the notes that you had that we haven't touched upon right. yet, but you, you made it clear that it was my baby now. So, um, so I ran with it, even though it was a little weird, it's, it's totally in my wheelhouse. I love taking bits and pieces and then fleshing out around it. It was really a lot of fun to do that. And I would love to have a, a narrator pass off game again sometime. If we can ever finish the empty, maybe we could pass it off to Kevin and see what he does. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm sure that has a lot to do with your theater background. Uh, you, you know, you've spent a lot of time in theater right. and adapting to existing scripts and, you know, trying to find right. character and story within an existing framework. I imagine that you probably have some improv training too. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. You, as an actor, you get the script and it's never fully explained to you everything about the character that you're playing. You just have to go off of the dialogue that occurs in the play. And so you extrapolate from that. And it's definitely something I enjoyed doing. So when you got the story from me, yeah. immediately from where I was at and saw it going, it took a hard left turn. And I was so <laughs> for the listeners, I had presented particularly this demonic creature called the heart of the forest, which was a giant, a giant spider, right? Like a really yeah. godlike spider. And it was being held yeah. in place by this mage who was holding it at bay in my head. And when I passed the story to Andy, he immediately took the feeling because I had apparently not conveyed precisely what I thought I had because his interpretation <laughs> of this was that the, the mage NPC was really not succeeding. And I had, I had sort mm. of set up this place as intended to be a hub for the, like a safe haven. And instead it became the root of everything that was going wrong, which was just so <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> And so I created these, not even created, I had named 
four yep. godlike beings that were going to be the source of the problem and that they all needed to be returned to once whence they came in order to, you know, solve the problem and save the world. So when you took that story, Andy, you clearly saw something different than I did. Yeah, I'm not sure what what the inspiration was, but I I took all the pieces that you had given us and it evolved into where those four godlike elemental creatures were the cause. I guess it, it still kind of was because the summoning of them broke the laws of the world and allowed the empty to start engulfing everything. Um, but the two were not associated in my head. And in fact, I really enjoyed making it so these entities were actually on your side in, in a way yeah. um, that they didn't want the world to be broken. They were an underlying elemental part of the world and they had nothing to do with the mist. The mist, I, of course, I tapped into Lovecraft. The, the mist is this eldritch outer entity that wants nothing but oblivion. And I, I loved, I loved twisting things and making fun reveals where an NPC that you guys or we, the three of us had encountered earlier turned out to be the bad guy who started all of this, who who wants to see the world burn, um, and he fooled us. Yeah, it fooled me too because I wrote that NPC as a uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the the goal was to have this NPC like become sort of a, a knowledge fountain for you guys to return to, and when you had questions. And then Andy drops him as the big bad. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so Kylan, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, when you started out with this concept, did you have a, a source, a backstory or reason for the empty and the mist? When I started it? Yeah. No, I did not. The idea was fully formed in the time that you guys were climbing the infinite stairway. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's when it finally became clear to me. Oh, so, so you <laughs> did have a concept of the cause of the mist and the, the empty before you, before you handed it off to Andy. Yes, I did. I, ha I concocted it in the session just prior to handing it off to Andy. Okay. So that provides a pretty good example, I think, of my process of world building. And hopefully the example helped illustrate what I went through in the previous episode. So in order to really, you know, cover more bases, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about It Came from the Piscataqua, which is your recent constructed world? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So th this was a playtest that emerged from... Um, the seat of my pants. Uh, that doesn't, that does not sound right, but I, it was, uh, you know, we were ramping up playtesting. This was also back in 2019, I think November, December, mm. 2019. And I had, I had gathered some willing participants and pretty intentionally actually decided that this would be very light on planning on predetermined story. So all I did was come up with the concept for the setting, which was loose. I decided I would set it in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is a town that we, we've all lived in and around. But I, I didn't want to make it modern, so I set it in the 1860s, 
sort of, uh, is that Victorian era? I think it's Victorian. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Reconstruction in America anyway. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I introduced the element of uh, mysticism, basically uh, tapping into a lot of local folklore and ghost stories. Portsmouth has a lot of great ghost stories and deciding that basically all of these things are true. And this is a world of supernatural activity that is just below the surface and secrets to be revealed and that sort of thing. Yeah, it came across very gaslamp fantasy. Exactly. Gaslamp fantasy. Mm. Yep. Which is a term I did not know until I came up with this setting. (laughs) Uh, And so I think I put about 45 minutes of prep into it while on the way back from visiting family over the weekend on a ferry. I had about 45 minutes on the boat and scribbled down bullet points about the setting and the problem. That was it, you know? And I think the problem was that children are disappearing. It was a problem. problem. It was a problem. And I wanted to keep it minimal in terms of that because I did not want to offer a tremendous amount of influence as to what kind of characters the players would create. I did do sort of a brainstorming of what kind of characters might exist in this setting that might be interesting, like paranormal investigator. Actually, no, you know what? I don't think I gave that as an example. Two (laughs) players actually decided to to be that. Uh, Sort of a apothecary, you know, uh, rogue who's sort of a back alley kind of thing. I I think I came up with just a, a... a litany of different sort of archetypes that might mm-hmm. fit. And I don't think any of them were really used. Right. Uh, they they might have lent some inspiration and guidance to the players, but none of them were were just used out of pocket. So I was I was really happy when the players got together and we started, you know, I just sort of started evoking some imagery about Portsmouth in the 1860s and some of that sense. And then we went through session zero. And by the end of the period of time, which was just a couple of hours that everybody had created their characters, I had the story in mind, uh, at least the, the impetus for the story that would get them all together, you know, uh, on the same page with, with the same goal. And you know, it was designed to be a fairly quick evening of play, you know, a one shot. So it escalated very quickly. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, there was a little, but there was, you know, some problem solving. There was some, some knowledge tapping into and uh, some skill stuff. And then ultimately a bunch of combat. And um, everybody, uh, you know, has said they had a good time. So I think it worked out. So in this case, it was, Similarly, a very iterative approach. We didn't do a lot of planning beforehand, as you said, just kind of constructed what was going to happen basically in the moment, like during character creation was where it came together. Very much. Yes. And the character creation was fuel for my ideas, you know, listening to the players talk about the backstory they wanted their characters to have gave me so many threads to pull on. And, you know, even even in a quick little scenario like that, all, what it did is, is it gave me opportunities to throw challenges at them that their characters 
had some capacity to solve in, in a creative right. way. Um, it was up to them to figure out how to use those abilities that they had, but it gave me an idea of some really fun exercises, you know, so just throw some stuff at them that I think they can do based right. on what I know about their characters and then see what happens. So in the past, when you have done game mastering and such, are you the type who generally creates his own world or are you a module setting type? Years and years ago, I, I, I think I became a huge fan of Forgotten Realms in the 80s when, you know, I, I think second edition D&D was out and the box set for the Forgotten Realms came out and the art was so amazing and compelling and mysterious and dark, you know, compared to other things that were out there. So before that, I had been purely, you know, this is as a kid, purely making up settings, you know, all over the place. And, um, and I loved it. And then the Forgotten Realms sort of broadened my horizons a little bit uh, and gave me ideas of how to really dig in. And so I turned around and applied, started applying that to every setting that I created and, you know, drew, drew maps and stories of, of the royalty of the nations and, you know, all this world building stuff that, that was a lot more sophisticated. So I think it's both. I think I, I love creating a new world and I really enjoy doing it and I love doing it collaboratively, but there's a lot to be said for standing on the shoulders of giants. Sure. Sure. Hmm. And so when you would create those settings, say after you encountered the Forgotten Realms, you'd do it in a very more of a waterfall method where you would just create and create and create and then bring your players in afterward. Um, I think I think I, there was a variety of cases, times in my life when I had more free time than time to actually get together with people and play. <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would go gangbusters on world building and backstory creation. And a lot of it never got used, never got touched, yep. but it was really fun and, uh, you know, satisfying. There were other times where you just had to jump in and start playing. And so I, I would have to draw on, I, I would have to improvise, you know, and, and, right. and do sort of what we've been talking about here. And they're both really fun. You know, they're both really satisfying experiences to have. And I think, I think there's room for both in, even in the same campaign. You know, you can sort of find parts of your campaign or, or intentionally leave parts of your campaign mysterious and, sure. and let those be improvisational zones. <laughs> right. You know, if the species happen to stumble into them, then you're in flying by to the seat of your pants mode and, uh, and you get to exercise those skills. But at the same time, there are better known parts of the world that you can rely on material you've created that makes a lot of sense all right andy so you have also been doing a recent play test yes would you like to talk about the world building process that you went through for uh what we refer to in shorthand as definitely not water world <laughs> <laughs> definitely not firefly on the ocean um <laughs> yeah i guess the method that I've been using in all the playtests that I've been doing with Trove, and I probably did a touch of this even playing, you know, D&D &D or, or other 
published works is I go to like session zero is very important to me because I go to it with nothing. And it could be said that that's lazy game mastering, but I'm actually trying to hold back from like, I want to create something and bring it to the table, but I'm finding that going to session zero completely open to what the players want to create gives them greater ownership of the entire process and the the game going forward. So with this group, I, well, what my usual procedure is, I let them know exactly that, that I am not creating anything. We're going to do a session zero where you're going to make your heroes. We're going to talk about what world you want to play in, what directions you want to go. And then I let them think about it. And then we, we hit session zero and it is truly a collaborative, creative process. And so we came to session zero and someone, you know, we, we went through the usual, you know, catching up and chit chat. And then when we got into the actual session, someone piped up and said, why don't we do a kind of water world apocalyptic sort of thing? It's, it occurs on earth and, uh, the, the sea levels have risen and sunk most of the world. And we just started going back and forth with that seat, with that spark, everybody started, you know, the wheels started turning in all of our, in all of our heads. And, uh, I always go into it kind of nervous and I'm sure the players do too, because, um, cause it's, it, it's daunting. Like as a player, you're being asked to, to have certain responsibility, uh, as a creator in this game. It's, it's not, I don't know how normal that is with, um, other RPGs, but, uh, I'm sure it's a bit daunting as a player coming to session zero with that in mind. But um, so far, my experience is after session zero, people are like, that was a lot of fun. So Andy, I have a question. Yeah. When you are thinking about doing a session zero, do your palms sweat? (laughs) (laughs) Because I liken it to rock climbing, even though I'm not a rock climber. I've, you know, I mean, I've climbed trees and I've climbed rocks and stuff like that. But you know, not, yeah. not serious actual rock climbing, but in my mind, it's this immense fortitude of spirit and confidence that you have to come into it with in order to be successful, because you have to go in knowing that you have the skill and the capability to be successful. Mm. Otherwise, otherwise you don't do it, you know? Um, and and there's you know there's you could go further with the analogy because of, because of the collaboration aspects but the same thing for a session zero when you walk into a session zero with no planning whatsoever hmm. uh, it it seems like it would make your palms sweat um yeah there is i mean with session zero uh, every session i i have a certain level of anxiety um it's daunting Mm. It is. It really is. But there are two things that uh, I feel alleviate it. it. One is, again, my how much I love taking pieces and filling in the spaces. And so this session zero is absolutely that. It's some great teamwork that happens when 
a spark is given and someone says, oh, what about this? And then someone says, yeah, but we could do this instead. And, oh, my character is going to be part of the thing that you thought of. And, uh, and it's a, this wonderful teamwork of back and forth. So my anxiety about going, quote unquote, completely unprepared to a session zero is overtaken by how excited I am to go through that process. And then the second thing is, I feel like what is expected of a game master, a good game master, is to never let them see you sweat. And that's something I have abandoned. Yeah. I don't go by that anymore. I'm like, hey, if, if I come up against a brick wall, I'm like, guys, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yep. <laughs> Can you help me out? Yep. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I think that absolutely just, it makes game mastering so much more fun. And the anxiety about it is reduced, not completely. I, I still get anxious, but especially to people coming into the game, people who want to try game mastering, that, you know, never let them see a sweat rule is not necessarily a sign of a good GM. Trust. I think what yeah. you're describing is, is trust in yourself, but also in the people you're playing with. And uh Yeah that goes a really long way. And I, I think it's, yeah, one of the absolute key elements to this entire game is having trust. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah. Additionally, the, the whole idea of the infallible GM leads in my opinion to a problem where if the GM knows or is supposed to know everything, they are going to push back at being surprised. Mm. It leads to the idea that the GM can't be surprised, which means that if something surprising happens, even just a lucky roll of the dice, the GM is forced to mitigate that because it's mm. messing with what they already know is supposed to happen. Mm. And GM infallibility is a, not necessarily, but is a precursor to a lack of player agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that, yeah. Yeah, that rigidity can uh, can snap. And so, Andy, in your previous, before we started this whole process, when you were world building in the past, what was your preferred method? Well, I was thinking about it when when Kevin was talking about it. It was it was a similar kind of thing when I was young and I first discovered D anD. I thought I really thought the game was modules. Like you get a module and that's how you play it. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until a little later when, when it became clear that you could also do your own thing and homebrew and um, create your own world. And it probably coincided with my discovery of Tolkien and his unprecedented world building. Yeah. Still unmatched, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And like aspiring to do a fraction of what he did. So um, then I started, I think pretty young, I stopped using published adventures i really just wanted to create my own stuff and so i i went through being the dm who creates the world and then places the heroes in it mm -hmm. and that eventually evolved into understanding player agency and why it's good not to have complete control and uh i'd say that was definitely a more recent thing when like there was yeah. a long stint when I wasn't playing any RPGs and then I picked D&D back up. I was, I felt I was, uh, I don't know if it was life experience or game experience or both, but I felt 
player agency needs to be more important and they need to have a hand in the creativity of the game. Very good. Well, hopefully that has shown our listeners a little bit about how we're thinking about world building now, how we've done it in the past and how we may do it going forward. So thank you guys again very much. I'm going to bring us back for a third part of this and talking more about that player involvement and player agency. So Mm. to the listeners out there, stay tuned because I think we have more to talk about on this topic. Yeah. Andy, Kevin, thank you again as always, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for joining me today. Before we go, one quick thing. If you're enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform or tweet us at TumbleDie. I'll read any reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDie Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, the interludes are Clockwork, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vince Vept. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash vincevept. V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Special thanks to my guests, co-founders, and partners in this crazy endeavor, Kevin and Andy. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Kylan Wigan. But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.